so we're going to jump right into it. There's no um, order this time around in, um, in which that we, uh, we have arranged the questions. Um, I know last time we did it back in April or, or March, whenever we did it, uh, we had like a theological uh, category, we had a practical category, um, and then we had like a miscellaneous category. But this is such a short list, um, seemingly, that um, we're just going to go right into it. Uh, here's the first question. Um, whoever asked it, we don't know who asked it, by the way, this is all anonymous. Um, so this question was asked, how do you study the Bible every day? Or what is the best way to study daily? For example, the SOAP method. Um, so really two questions in one. How do you study the Bible every day? Um, and what is the best way to study daily? Go ahead and uh, start. Start. Okay. Start. Um, so for this question, I guess like the person is trying to practice this. I, I, that's from the, the perspective from which I'm trying to answer it. And their question is like, is there such a thing as the best method to study it with? And how do I even grow in this ability to study the Bible on a daily basis? So that's from the perspective from which I'm answering it. The first thing that I said would be important is um, recognizing that the Bible is the inherent word of God. Um, before you commit to studying the Bible, you need to know why you're studying the Bible, why you think it's important, right? Um, the inherent word of God means it doesn't err, it doesn't have errors in it. It is all truth, right? And if you compare any truth that is proclaimed to be truth in the world and it contradicts with the word of God, that means the other thing is a lie, right? So it's, it's the way by which we measure truth, right? And the Bible itself tells us that it's sufficient truth right for a person that walks with the lord to be able to do all kinds all good works with right it is supposed to correct us reprove us encourage us train us in righteousness according to the word so starting from there is a very big important thing the commitment itself the direction itself the power itself comes from knowing that and recognizing that that god who created heaven and earth with his words has spoken in the Bible, and it's super important for us to recognize what that is, right? Then, once you have that fully, like, recognized, um, it's just, it puts you in a worshipful heart to be able to study the scripture itself. It's not just another book we study, um, but it's, it's the God of the universe speaking to us, and we're trying to recognize, or we're trying to understand what he's communicated to us. But then again, it's a book and it's written in words so that we can grasp it. And God's wisdom, he has put it into words for us to be able to understand. And that's what encourages us to study. But that being said, um, I think those things are more important things than which method of study that we use to study the Bible. Recognizing the Bible as the word of God and giving it that worshipful heart sets us in the right direction that more, more, more than anything else. But then there are study methods that are not helpful. Uh, and there are study methods that get to the heart of 
what the Bible is. Um, the method that is mentioned here, SOAP study method, um, it's pretty much like the a method that directly engages us with what we need to see about scripture. First reading it and meditating on it and making observations and taking out applications and finally in prayer going out to do the will of the Lord with what we study. I, I find that to be a very good way to do it. To do it. Um, there are further things that we can share with you guys as materials to help you study in that method. So SOAP would be a very good method to study it, uh, provided the things that I said are there in place already. Um, and the final thing I want to say is when we study the Bible, um, the very fact that God has given us instruction on how to live, what the world he created is like, who he is above all things, right? And in comparison to, to that, who we are, both in our fallenness and in our saved journey as believers, those things are very critical to us. And I just want to reemphasize the, the motive or the power that comes to study the scripture every day comes from the true recognition of what God says about his word. Meditate on it day and night is what he tells Joshua who's going to war. So it's very critical for us, especially in the world that we live in right now, where like truth is not even a concept people submit to, to recognize how desperately we need to like study the scripture, read the scripture, meditate on the scripture, base our lives on it and trust it and stake all things on it and it alone, right? So that's just what motivates the study of scripture for me. So that's all I got. Hey, that's good. Um, so as I read this question, I have a little bit of, I, I tell people I speak fluent um, sarcasm in addition. So I'm maybe like a trilingual in a way. Um, so, because I speak fluent Amharic, or at least I think I do, um, and then English, and then sarcasm is a new one um, that I've added to that. Because I, I, I see questions like, how do you do it? And I'm going to tell you a quick question, a quick um, example. Um, a few weeks ago, I was out in Portland for a conference, and morning time breakfast, we were sitting around to eat breakfast, and um, somebody walked up to me and said, hey, how did you sleep? And like my first instinct was to say laying down, um, obviously, right? I know what they meant, but I was just going to be funny and sarcastic and just say laying down. How did you sleep? Um, and I, I overcome that temptation that one day, but the next day, that same person did the same thing and I just could not resist. And then I, I said it and I, I um, confessed right after and I said, please forgive me. Yesterday, I, I, I won over this temptation, but today it had the best of me. So I say all of that to say, because when I read the question, how do you study the Bible every day? I'm so tempted to say, how do you study the Bible every day? By reading it would be the mo most obvious answer, right? Um, but that's not helpful. Um, that obviously everybody notes you have you have to read the bible in order to study the bible if anything if you want to study biology 
or math or anything, you would have to get engaged with that material, whatever that subject matter is. Um, with that being said, though, honestly, this I, I hear the heart of this question. Um, it's coming from a place where why is it hard for me to study the Bible? Right. Um, most of us don't have a problem studying whatever hot series is out right now on Netflix or Hulu or whatever your streaming platform is, right? Or studying your top 10 most followed people on social media, um, studying their, their patterns of life, their dress code, what they just ate because people post food, right? It's like that first thing you do when you go out to a restaurant and, uh, and, and the server brings out your, um, your plate and it looks so nice. It's not even like, wow, it looks good. Well, maybe it is wow, it looks good. And then the phone comes out and then the filter comes out and then you take pictures and you post it. I just had pasta for lunch and this is what my pasta looks like, right? So it's no problem with it for us to study. And then I'm pretty sure the YouTubers and whatever the social media people are not finding questions like this. How do you find, how do you, what is the most effective way to, to study social media or whatever? The reason why that is, is because, um, there we go. Um, perfect, thank you. Um, something like this would happen, actually. We planned this out. That's why it's so hard for you to study the Bible, because you get distracted. Right? We planned this out. This was a good job. Perfect timing. Right on cue, right? You get distracted. You start reading your Bible, and then you start reading about some seemingly irrelevant part of the Bible where some nation who doesn't even exist goes to war with somebody else, and then there's a bunch of names that you can't pronounce. And then it kind of just goes from there, and you're like, all right, my phone just went off. I gotta check who texted me. And you get distracted. Um, so understanding the weakness of the flesh is probably the best part um, that is to understand about how to study the Bible. Um, studying it prayerfully is, is one of the best ways uh, to do it in, in terms of um, even you read a verse and then in that verse you see a word that sticks out and you use that as a, uh, as a platform or as a launching pad of just praying through what God is saying, the SOAP method. Um, honestly speaking, I had not heard of the SOAP method until the, I saw this question and I looked it up. SOAP method is scripture, observation, application, and prayer. That's what the SOAP is, if you didn't know about it. So read the scripture, observe what's in the scripture. So what is the scripture saying? And then how does that apply to you? Um, and then pray about those things that you find in scripture um, as, as the best way to do it. But honestly, just read the Bible every day. Um, you can do it. In passing, you can do it as a leisure reading. You don't even have to retain anything. Um, there's times where 
personally because I'm I'm looking at how do you how do you study the Bible every day? Maybe it's more personal as well. I don't know what the intention is um, for this question. If it is a personal one, some days I literally just open the Bible and I have reading plan uh, reading plans that we're going through, and the Bible app is a good um, it's a good uh, resource for that. Um, so. Yeah, you can come on in and have a seat. We're just having a conversation. Um, and we're, we're in the middle of service, however, though. So, um, or if some one of you guys from uh, the leadership team can go out and assist them, please. Um, but the best way to do it is honestly just just read it. Some days I'm just having coffee and I'm just reading. I'm not trying to retain information. I'm not trying to to seek out what the Greek means or the Hebrew means. I'm just reading just to spend time with my Father in heaven. That's ultimately if you have the heart that when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm studying my Bible, I'm actually hearing from my heavenly Father live. That's the heart. That's the best way to do it, honestly. Uh, looking at what you're reading, what you're studying, is God breathed and God speaking to you. I've heard this said that if you want to hear God talk to you, read your Bible. Don't wait for a dream or like uh, an audible whisper or a heart impression or somebody coming and says, thus says the Lord to you. You read the Bible, you're guaranteed you're hearing God speak. It's a 100% guarantee. Um, and if you want to hear them audibly, just read it out loud. <laughs> um, again, that's not original. I've, I've heard it said. So that would be the only thing I would add to what God said, uh, understanding the challenges that you would face, um, and then seeing it as spending time with God um, in, 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 um, just in whatever capacity. Just get the Bible in front of you doesn't matter how long it doesn't matter how far behind you are or how little you understand it just get the bible in front of you start reading it um and god will do the work um that's essentially what i'm, I'm gonna read it it would be unfair um even almost sinful to talk about how to study the bible and not quote the Bible, and here's what God says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, um, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the, the Yahweh our God, the Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and you, with all your might. And these words that I command you to do shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and there shall be the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. I mean, in every way, just put the Word of God in front of you. Wherever you are, just get in contact with the Word of God. That's essentially what that is. So that would be the... Um, the answer I would give to that um, question, sure. Um, one additional thing, maybe in, in the direction that Manny's talking also, um, 
getting a study Bible, a good study Bible, will make your reading pretty fruitful, pretty fast. You don't have to go around looking for stuff, especially when you're starting out. It will be very practical uh, for, for you to study. So I think it's one of the, the ways you put the Bible in front of you, as he's saying, very, very meaningfully and powerfully. All right, moving on to the next question. Um, is there such a thing as generational sin? Like, um, I'm, I'm reading it as, as, as it's written. Um, like, does God punish for the sin of our parents or grandparents? So I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know if this is technologically. Does God punish us for the sin of our parents and grandparents? So, again, uh, is there such a thing as generational sin? Um, and then to what extent is the punishment, if there is a such? Um, do you want to go? You know what? Okay. I'll start, and, and then you correct me, because I'm going uh, to mess this whole thing up. Um, you guys are familiar with that term, right? Generational sin, like breaking generational curses. That, that seems to be a pretty popular um, theological term um, for it. And, and that's especially in our time. Um, but is there such a thing as generational sin? Technically, yes. Um, because, of, and, and hear me out, right? Um, so my answer would be yes and no. Um, here's where my yes goes to. My yes goes to Adam, who is the first human. And because he fell in sin, Adam and Eve, to be um, equal opportunity, um, question, answer, so to speak, um, our, our first parents were sinners, and therefore, we have this concept of original sin, um, technical term for it. We are born in sin and transgressions, um, so we have this sin nature that comes through the generations. Um, I don't think anybody, anybody's parent in here ever sat them down and said, okay, this is how you tell a lie, okay? First, know the truth. Then, tell something that's the opposite of truth. And if your parents have ever taught you that, please come find me at the end um, so we can pray for your parents. Um, but nobody has ever taught us how to lie or even to be angry. Um, and one of the things that we learn um, from, from a young age, if you have younger siblings, the first word that they would learn is mine, or that's not fair. Um, those things, who taught you that? Nobody, really. Nobody consciously ever taught you that. So from, from that perspective, there is such a thing as generational sin, that we are born in, in sin, um, sin being a part of our nature. So, But I think the question doesn't have that into account. I think the question is asking, um, does the sin of the parent translate into the sin of the kid? 
um, or the child or the grandchild for that matter. Um, if, for instance, if my parents were idol worshipers or Satanists or whatever, fill in the blank, or unbelievers completely, and they did some hideous sin and they committed the sin, um, am I now responsible for that? I think Ezekiel answers that uh, clearly that stop saying that is what um, Ezekiel tells them. And he um, poetically applies um, this common uh, poem that they, they know of this proverb um, that because of the, the, the sin of the fathers, the son is not judged um, or the son, because of the son, uh, the sin of the son, the father is not judged. Everyone is judged or held responsible for their own individual sin from generation to generation. Um, so from that perspective, my answer would be no, just because my, my dad was an alcoholic. Not that he was, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. It does not make me then automatically responsible for my alcoholism or what, what, whatever. Um, so from that perspective, that goes into that second portion of that question, does God punish the sin of our, uh, your parents or grandparents? Um, he won't punish you for the sin of your parents, but the consequence of your parents' sin um, would definitely affect you. The effects of sin and the punishments of sin are two different things, right? So the punishment of sin is you being held responsible. So if my parents are divorced or if something like that happens, yet yeah, there's a sin there divorce god hates it and uh, so if that divorce happened in a sinful way and god is not going to hold you responsible for that god is not going to say see that's your sin your parents divorce is your sin however you will see the consequence of that that sin happen in your life growing up in a broken home from a practical perspective right um and not understanding and all those things that would put um, stress and, and, um, into your, your thinking. Uh, so from that perspective, he won't punish the sin of your parents or your grandparents into the son uh, or the grandson or the grandchild, but the consequences of those sins will be felt from generation to generation. Um, so it's not a punishment, it's a consequence in terms of the effects of that sin, um, but you're not being held responsible for what your parents did. Your parents are going to be the ones that are going to have to answer um, and be held accountable for their sin, just like you would um, for yours. And then your, your children uh, will not be held accountable for your sins, but whatever you do will affect um, your children. Uh, whatever sins that we commit would affect our, our children. Um, that'd be my answer. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Uh, I think that was like 100% something I agree with, and that covers the whole point. For me, the only thing I want to get back, like, put underneath it or with it is the scripture of how people may come to this conclusion. Um, Exodus 20 is where God gives the commandments, and... Um, first commandment says this, you shall not make your, for yourselves carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath. This is so idolatry we're talking about. 
that is not uh, uh, in the water or in the earth. And it says, you shall now bow, you shall not bow down to them and serve them for the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of the, those who love me and keep my commandments. To which we can easily conclude, God is saying, you know what I mean? If your parents are going to hate me, I'm just going to pay it all, all the way up to fourth generation. And that's a very simplistic definition of the word because the word of God keeps going. And we get to Jeremiah. In those days, Jeremiah 31, 29 says, they shall no longer say, this is the new covenant times, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning for whatever the fathers or the parents have done, the children are paying for it, right, basically. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity and each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So meaning you have personal responsibility for everything you do, everything, every consequence or every punishment you get from God is based on what you have done, not anybody else. So that's opening for us of what Exodus was trying to communicate in the first place. Just like Manny said earlier, your parents' sins have consequences in your life. That's what Exodus is trying to communicate to you. A person born of a non-believer family, right, finds Christ later on in their life because immediately they did not act, get access to the gospel. And you can see the consequence of that, right? Like living your life not knowing the gospel and finding out later on in your life, you, you suffer a lot, uncomparably. That doesn't mean you are unsavable or you're actually being punished or something, but it still has effects. But it's not saying you're responsible for these things. And lastly, the scripture I want to mention is these things Manny has been mentioning already when he was talking. Ezekiel 18 is the person who asked this question. I just advise you to go to that chapter and read the whole chapter. It gives a comprehensive answer. But this is what the Lord says. Behold, all souls are mine. And the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So simply God is saying, whoever lives their lives must leave it in righteousness and God's judgment is based on them, that particular type of life. And righteousness, you can't just start in righteousness and like go into wickedness later on because your righteousness will not be counted if you do that, right? It's just talking about a lifestyle of obedience and submission to God always leads to eternal life, provided we know the New Testament, meaning we are saved by faith in Christ Jesus alone, right? Yet those who are saved by faith live in that faith and God honors that. So anything that comes from our parents, even though it affects our lives, it makes it harder. There is lots of consequences to being born in a, in a household that has like parents that do not believe, the other, the flip side is true as well. If you've been born in a Christian family, you have received benefits you wouldn't otherwise, right? Yet we are all before God responsible for the life that we live before him. That's what the Bible uh, teaches. Thank you. Um, 
uh, next question is um, how should someone intentionally pursue a relationship keeping in mind that the person being pursued is also a fellow member of God's family you want to hear my my answer for it yes that's my answer <laughs> you're saying huh you guys heard the question, right? How should someone intentionally pursue a relationship, keeping in mind that the person being pursued is also a fellow members, a fellow member of God's family? Yes. Because the answer is in there, is what I'm getting at. Keeping in mind, how should you how should you pursue them? It's right there. Like, this is a genius, actually. And I appreciate you, whoever asked this question. This is an amazing question because the answer is already in there. I didn't even have to do anything um, in terms of this question, right? Um, keeping in mind that the person being pursued is also a fellow members, member of God's family. That's how you should pursue them. Yes. Yep. That, that'll be it. Um, but again, that's my okay. third language um, coming out. Um, I can expand on that. That's that's essentially where that is. It's, it's, and this is, by the way, pursue or being pursued um, is a, a Christianese um, for dating, what the world would call dating, right? Um, what you would know it as, um, or if you if you read Puritans, um, you would hear the word courtship or courting. Um, so that, that'd be the different, um, wordings or that you would, um, you would find, yeah, you have to be intentional about it. Again, this question is loaded, but with the answers, you have to be intentional about it. Why are you pursuing? What is your intention for pursuit or for dating or for courtship or whatever? What is your intention? So you have to work that out before you and God. Um, and I would even encourage you to include uh, faithful, mature believers that are in your life, that are discipling you, um, that you trust um, uh, their, their, their counsel. Um, that comes into the intentionality part of it. Um, when, when, when it comes to that, um, this is my intention, and you have somebody that's counseling you and keeping you accountable, so if you misstep, then you can kind of go back and say, hey, I'm being intentional about it. Um, and that sounds like or looks like there may even be follow-up questions for this one. Um, but, yeah, you, you are going to be intentional about it, and you're pursuing this relationship, and you just, who is this person that you're pursuing? Before, I, I say this to, to people often, um, and I know it sounds weird um or even provocative a little bit before my wife was my wife before my wife is my wife she's my sister and i don't mean it in the incestual way but she is my sister in christ right so before she and i became husband and wife we were brother and sister in christ so the tender um, care and understanding and gentleness that one would have without having that mixed with that other realm of a husband-wife relationship brings in and of itself 
having that in mind, keeping that in mind, hey, at the end of the day, my wife and I are not just in relationship here. Our relationship is eternal. I know when, whenever you go to weddings, if you've been to weddings, and, and if you've been married yourself, um, and you hear this vow being said, until death do us part, right? That's the wedding vow that's there. But death is not the end of my relationship with my wife. I may not have that relationship with her as my wife in heaven. Um, and she wouldn't have that relationship with me as her husband. Um, but we will continue to have fellowship and relationship with one another as brother and sister. So from that perspective, having that eternal perspective, you're not just focused on what's happening here because what's happening here is going to be informed by the way culture is, by the way that what your expectations are, your presuppositions of what a relationship should be. Should we hold hands and no, no holding hands, uh, hug, side hug or front hug. And like all those things that come into, into, into play may affect and taint your, uh, taint your, your vision. Uh, from that, but having that perspective of, hey, by the way, we are having this relationship before the, 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 the side of God as brother and sister, and that's going to be an eternal one, but I would like to pursue this relationship that gets us closer even um, to accomplish what God has for us. So that would be my, um, my answer from a practical perspective when it comes to that but the answer was already in the question so if you didn't hear anything that I said if you tuned out yes is the answer I completely agree with that the only thing I will extend to you guys especially for the person who asked that question or all of you who are thinking of this is we have elders in the church for a reason right we're not we're not only the people who answer your questions on Q&A sessions. Um, you can come to us f from the get-go to ask how to proceed um, once you have your specific situation. And we're going to be here all the way through life as long as the Lord has us in this place. And when we're gone, other people will be here, uh, provided that you're younger than us. But the point is, like, the reality that knowing that we are the family of Christ, we have an eternal relationship with one another, and we have elders that Christ has put in this place, Christ himself is guiding us through his spirit and through his word, will help you figure out things that may be confusing to you very easily, right? Um, and even having a perspective of another person that's not involved in what you're trying to pursue is going to help you a lot. So just come to us and communicate what you're going through and we will day one day at a time communicate with you what steps to take and what's the wise way and what's what the lord commands uh, we should be like given what manny said has being making it clear for you how to proceed starting from now. My name is Manny. Nice to meet you, Manny.
Um, all right, next question is, um, in what ways can we, can we grow closer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? What are some of the ways that we can grow together um, as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you want to go first? Yeah, I just want to read what I read earlier. Um, it's Ephesians 5. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? This is... Um, Never mind. This is Ephesians 5. Um, what this teaches us is like what we normally every week do. Um, as we get together, we sing together, we pray together, we encourage one another, we fellowship, we do all these things. Don't take that as that's church. And then I have this side relationship here. Instead, take that as just that's also fellowship. That's you growing in faith with your brothers and sisters. That you, that's, that's the most intimate part of our lives, to be honest. We're sharing that with our brothers and sisters. So recognizing that as a place where our relationships are naturally growing, but then in the same time recognizing what brings us to oneness, what, what brings us closest the most is us getting closer to Christ, us growing in our knowledge of who Christ is. What brings us together is what Christ has done on our behalf. He made us a family. He made us brothers and sisters. He is continuing to make us brothers and sisters, right? So the, the activities that we have, including this Q&A session, right, are helping us become brothers and sisters. Um, and the more we know him, the more we imitate him, the more we are going to be united with one another. Um, is one thing I want to mention or the biggest foundational starting place for relationship uh, between, uh, between brothers and sisters. Um, so the main place we build relationships with one another is in corporate worship or when we gather together, right? Um, yet, the last thing I want to say, or maybe the question is directed at this more pinpointedly, is... Try this very thing that says, be filled with the Spirit, singing in hymns and psalms and singing in melody with one another and speaking to one another in the way that the scripture puts it. Try that when you guys gather casually. If you already have friendships or being together with one another, bring what you believe into that equation. Don't let that, that time you spend with one another just be, you know, we make it as we go kindness place, but really potentially engage in speaking the truth with one another, speaking scripture, singing the songs together, and just then continuing to fellowship as you wish and enjoying your time with one another. But then the scripture being brought into place, us communicating with one another according to the word of God and being intentional about it, being proud of it, being excited that you get to do that with people your age, that will transform our relationships with one another. 
that will give us the true sense of what it means to be brothers and sisters. And the Bible is so beautiful and powerful to communicate to us what we need to do. We are, don't forget, people whose law, the laws of God are written in our hearts, right? And the Bible is going to help us understand what it means to be a good brother, a loving brother, what it means to be a good sister, a loving sister to our brothers and sisters, right? That's what I wanted to mention. Yeah, I would, um, I would add from a practical perspective, I think if I had to guess and uh, practically talk about how to be a good brother and sister, I mean, there's a couple of sets of brothers and sisters that I see in, in this room that are siblings. I mean, you guys can start by sitting closer. That'll get your relationship perfect, right? Just like the other brothers and sisters, they're sitting right next to each other, right? That's, that's a practical vision. Um, no, um, but that, that has some, you can take whatever you will from that. I am again, um, being a little lighthearted from, from that perspective, but, um, what Kyle said, uh, I concur. Um, how do we get close to one another is how do you, how do you get close with your siblings at home that are, you spend more time with them. You get to know who they are. You get to know their weaknesses and their strengths and you cover their weakness and you you uphold their strength and they do the same thing ideally um, in a perfect world um, same thing is true when it comes to um, when it comes to the church and um, as Kyle was answering this passage came to mind in Acts chapter 2 um, how this church that is really multi-ethnic um, or multicultural, multi-generational comes together at the day of Pentecost um, and Peter preaches the gospel to them and they say, what should we do? And he tells them to believe and baptize, to get baptized. And then the Lord would, um, the Lord added about 3,000 souls to the church in one day. I can't even start to count 3,000 people being added. And they devoted themselves, and this is Acts 2, starting with verse 42. This has been uh, a verse for our Bible study lately. Um, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's the word of God there. And the fellowship, and the fellowship, and to the breaking bread and prayers. That's how they got close to each other. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, and they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You kind of see this picture of that relationship that we want to cultivate here, even in our in our midst, in our local body um, is to just have fellowship, to get to know who they are, to get to know who, where our needs are. And really, how did Jesus, he is our example of this, this relationship that we're pursuing, right? What did Jesus actually do to show his disciples what that kind of relationship looks like? Look like? He, everybody knows the story in, um, in the Gospel of John, right? Where Jesus 
comes and he unrobes himself and he goes down and starts washing his disciples' feet. He starts serving them. And then he tells them, by this people would know that you are my disciples. I showed you this as an example that this is the way that you should serve one another in humility and love for one another. Serving one another is probably one of the best ways that you can grow in relationship with another, with one another. When there's a need, when you see a need, or when you even ask of a need, and you pray for somebody, or that's that's an act of service, um, or you, whatever the need is, fill in the blank. I don't even want to be so specific, but filling the need and serving one another is one of the most effective ways to grow in relationship with one another. Think of time that your brother or sister covered for you um, when you missed a chore and you were about to get grounded and then you found out that your brother or sister had and if this is something that has never happened to you you can look at your brother and say learn something uh, or your sister and then you find out that's been covered and you don't even have to get grounded. Imagine the, the connection that you felt. It's like, oh, thank you for looking out and, or, and vice versa. And that kind of brings you closer to each other. Or when someone is being mean to you in school and uh, at recess when you're in elementary school, right? And then your brother is, stands up for you and serves you as a protector. Or your sister says, hey, stop making fun of my brother. That makes that bond closer. So serving one another is the best way, one of the best ways. And this is what the Lord himself showed us as well. And this is what we see the church doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they had fellowship. They came together. They break bread together. By the way, eating together is also one of the best ways. And that's why we're working hard to, um, to have a fellowship hall across the across the. Uh, the hallway here, um, library fellowship hall, where there's going to be something that would encourage that, that would facilitate that, um, and, I, and I missed as well, uh, where we'll have refreshments and people can come in and read a book or, or talk to one another, have coffee and tea and maybe soda if there's there, zero sugar definitely because we want to be healthy, right? Um, no. Um, <laughs> Those things I got one one um, uh, one one person that acknowledged that, but um, but those things are there, and then they served one another, right? They sold whatever they whatever they need was, they felt a need. They uh, selling their possessions, belonging, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Um, so that kind of um, service is what would. Um, what would help us grow together, um, obviously founded on the teaching of, uh, of the apostles and the word of God. Moving right along, we have a few more minutes. I don't know how many of these we'll get to. Um, I'll skip the, the, the next one um, and go to the one that we actually carried over from last time. Um, and this is probably timely and relevant. Um, how should you deal with gender dysphoric thoughts? Oh, yeah, I can hear a pin drop in here. Gender, gender dysphoria, that's something that we talk about in church. Yeah, ask us. 
um, how do you deal with gender dysphoric thoughts? And I know there's if there's follow-up questions. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna get to that. Yeah, I, I got you. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's that's a question that we actually kind of punted um, from last time, and, and then I didn't want to I didn't want to punt again before we uh, we dealt with that because it sounds like this is it might not be this may have come from a person that is dealing with those kind of thoughts. Um, and I know everybody's like, what is that? So I, I went and Googled so you don't you didn't have to. Um, the Merriam, what is it, Webster, dictionary meaning of the word dysphoria. And if you look it up right now, it defines it as a general sense of unhappiness or discontent about a given situation, right? So you put gender in front of it, it's a general sense of unhappiness and ease or anxiety or stress about your gender. That would be the direct um, dictionary definition of gender dysphoria, honestly. A general sense of discontentment or unhappiness about whatever. So you can be dysphoric about being broke. You can, you can have, and I don't want to discount the seriousness of this thought for whoever asked, but in a, in a, in a sense, um, you can be, you can, you can struggle with financial dysphoria, for instance, based on the meaning of the word dysphoria, right? That I am, discontent with my bank account or you can you can have dysphoric thoughts of your 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 spiritual walk again going back to the meaning of it and I'm the reason I'm I'm mentioning it is to to just take that and then looking at the culture that's around us and then making it seem almost like a biological issue where science is clear. Um, there's no scientific evidence that there is no biological evidence that this is the case. This is more of a pr perspective or a perception issue um, or a, a thought process issue, just like, just like that. But when you hear the word gender dysphoria, it sounds like, you know, uh, some kind of medical term. Um, some kind of medical condition where someone can, can, can die from or whatever. Again, that's not to discount the seriousness of the issue if you're dealing with that or anything along the lines of that. But you deal with that. How do you deal with that is the question. Um, haven't defined that. And if I haven't done a good job defining it, defining it uh, I'm sure um, I will... Um, kind of fill in the gaps there. Um, you would deal with it, again, prayerfully. Um, and it's a very, 
subjective issue. To what extent are you discontent about it? And that's really what it, what it comes down to, right? You look at the culture and it's like, hey, I am not content. I don't feel happy being this gender, whether male or female, right? I, am, I was born a female and I, I'm not happy with that. Um, that's not as medical or scientific. Uh, that's not a problem that, that cannot be solved. Um, but it is a challenge, just like anything else. Whatever the issue may be, whatever the sin is, it's a sin issue ultimately, just like anything else is. Um, and I know it's an easier, it's a low-hanging fruit, and we can pick on that, and then we can kind of go with what the culture is saying us, and we want to be overcorrective and, and everything else. But it's a sin issue. And the reason that you're having that discontentment um, is the same reason why someone would have a discontentment about their current condition in their spiritual walk or in their financial state or in the marriage or, um, or, or anything else and why they're contemplating divorce or why are they contemplating suicide or are they contemplating whatever that is. And if, we, if you having those thoughts, I would immediately um, ask that you would seek help, uh, find, um, find someone in your local church, if this is not your local church, um, find me or Kyle or, or anyone else that you would hold trustworthy from the pastoral or the, the eldership. Um, talk to your parents if your parents are trustworthy from that perspective. If you're again finding godly counsel um, and working through it from a biblical perspective and understanding it from there, um, those thoughts may not may may be something that you you have to struggle with for the rest of your life, even. Um, but working through it with fellow believers that are more mature, that can help you and guide you um, from, from there, but understanding that you are not doomed, right? That's not it for you, right? The ship hasn't sailed. There's grace for that. Um, I'm reminded of what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, and he lists... Um, a whole bunch of vices or sins, if you will. Um, don't you know that um, the sexual immoral or um, the homosexual or the, uh, the liar or the slanderer, um, and he, he goes and mentions the, um, a bunch of sins there, and for the sake of time, I, I, I won't go there. Um, would inherit the kingdom of God? And the answer is, yeah, we do know that. But that's not it. He doesn't finish there. And he reminds the, the, the church, such were some of you. So whatever those lists are, whether that's the homosexual, the sexual immoral, the liar, the, the thief, the slanderer, 
um, all of those other vices that are such were some of you, but you have been sanctified now. You have been saved. So the grace of God is the power of God for salvation. The gospel has power to save you from that. Um, so it's not completely, the door is not shut. God is not going to say, all right, that's it. You're, you're dealing with gender dysphoria and you're, you're having these thoughts and you're done. You're taken out of the book of life. That is, that's not the case. There's grace there. Um, and God is, is continually delivering people um, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Um, so know that, be comforted in knowing that the gospel is the power of salvation, even for gender dysphoric thoughts. Um, and then starting from there, finding counsel um, would be um, how we should definitely deal with that. Um, love and care and tenderness and gentleness are um, really necessary, especially when it comes to something like this. Um, I think the question kind of, or well, we went through the first time, like uh, you raised your hands and you guys asked us, can you define this term for us? Right. I want us to really look at that. That means it's not it's not a, like something we all know about to begin with, right? And the question itself is says, what should, how should you deal with gender dysphoric thoughts? Um, I know the person who asked this question, if they're going through it or not, in our society to ask even that question is a hard thing to do. I get that, right? Um, as, take it however you will. It, it's hard to ask in our society because like there's a sense of like keeping the culture and attaching the faith as being against this which it really is to be honest but then it's just so serious because we don't even have a definition for this terms in those cultures to begin with so like i want to pull your attention towards the idea that we need definitions to even think about this so like where is this coming from? This, this is telling us this is not the reality and majority of the human race's historical journey, right? Or this is not like I've, I've seen a lot of people going out in the world and asking different nations, right? How many genders are there and stuff like that? And they didn't even understand the question. They would say like, you mean men and female? Like, what about that? Right? And that's Basically, the answer they give every time, they don't even understand the question. And when you try to explain to them, most of them burst into laughs or something like that, right? So I'm not here to say, right, we don't care, don't worry about it, let it go. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm here to say humanity overall, even broken humanity, fallen mankind, is collectively saying to us, that's not been the norm of how we got here. Broken as we are, that's not the norm. So the question is, where are these thoughts coming from now? Why are these thoughts more prevalent in like countries that have progressed than they are in countries that are considered third world or progress less than the, the leading countries in terms of economics or whatever? And the Bible has the answer to that question 
There are three places where our thoughts come from that are contrary to the word of God. The flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh, by definition, is the part of us that is enslaved to the lies of the devil. So apparently, the devil is involved there. And the world is the system that was built when a collected set of sinners put together their own government and their own rulership, right? So the devil is at the pinnacle of ruling over our flesh, this world, and the system that are set up on it, and as well as he directly, as, as scripture says, right, like kind of throws thoughts in our way, right? Fiery darts is how the Bible puts it. So like, don't think these are my original thoughts every time you have a thought, right? Don't think like this is something that is normal to all of humanity because I'm just telling you, even people who are not believers somewhere else in the world do not even know about this. And then even us, when we were about to discuss this question, we needed definitions. So let's not, it sounds, it's louder in our society and where we live than it actually is, right? It's just people are loud about it and it's not the norm. But that, that being said, so does the scripture leave us open for attacks? There is no solution. It doesn't even try to sympathize with us. It does, right? And this is basically a sexual issue. And the Bible deals with the sexu sexual issues of all kinds, including how we should be holy in marriage, how we should be holy in singleness, everything, including how do you deal with your sexual, sexually immoral thoughts towards appropriate the appropriate gender, right? How do you deal with your sexually immoral thoughts about being this, being this like horrible man or horrible woman using your already existing socially acceptable gender in the wrong way. How does the Bible deal with it when it comes to sexuality? There are two advices in there, one and the same, right? Jesus taught us last week, right? Sin is going to make, you, make us liable to death. Right? So the, the way to deal with it is cut your hand, gouge out your eye. That In that place, Jesus describes it's way better to actually literally do that to your body and enter heaven than to actually be comfortable, follow your own lead, do your own thing, and end up in hell. Right? That's the clear picture that Jesus gives us. And he's also telling us you're way too weak to actually engage with this kind of thing and overcome it. That's not how Christ advised us to overcome it. So what he's saying is whatever sources are there that are feeding you on these thoughts, cut them out. Whatever relationships are there that are informing you more and more, cut them out, right? We brought it for discussion because it's coming, like these definitions are coming to you even though we don't define it to you. But I'm telling you, the more you cut them out, just like I illustrated around the world, people who haven't heard about this don't know about it to begin with, let alone struggle with it. And the other one is just flee what Paul says to Timothy. Run away from it as quickly as possible. Do not engage. Do not stand and try to fight. Try to reason. Do not even do anything in your own power. Know that. The moment you cut it out from your life, the moment you run away from it, 
you have the freedom that Christ gives. You are protected in what Christ has done for you, right? So do not make it, do not let it make a prison for you, right? These thoughts could become fortresses that keep you prisoner to never get out of this fortress that the devil builds around us. And this is not the only thought that he throws our way, right? He makes the world look better than following Christ. Right? He makes comfort look better than sacrificing ourselves for the, the Lord. Right? So all these thoughts are trying to hold us captive, but by the word of God, we destroy them. Right? Every thought so that we are freed and liberated to serve the living God and to live as free children of God. So as Christ said, cut these things out of your life, the sources of this information, the sources of this thought. The culture itself that embraces people that we hang out with, that take this as a normal thing, as a good thing. I'm not saying don't be friends with them. That's not the point. But for the sake of if you're struggling with this thoughts, avoiding those environments is the best way to deal with it first. And then later on, if you want to help your friends and if you want to be friends with your friends, the first thing you should do is take the gospel to them and present Christ to them in love, right? So that's that's what I wanted to say about this. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Um, one one more thing to add, and it has nothing to do with my own words or my own thoughts. Second uh, Corinthians chapter uh, ten, starting in verse four, this may be helpful, um, even to kind of tie everything together, both. Um, of what I said and what God just mentioned. He alluded to a bunch of these things in his answer as well. That's why I um, that scripture came to mind. Um, here's what the apostle writes. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. Um, so that is essentially where we find our strength. Um, and how that even works out in our minds, even though we're flesh and blood, we do not war according to it. We have divine power to break down strongholds. A stronghold is something that takes a hold of your thoughts, a very strong hold of it. <laughs> that, um, But we have that divine power um, to actually, the way that Paul says, to destroy that and you destroy arguments and you destroy every lofty opinion like lofty word like high sounding word like dysphoria um <laughs> you this very high sounding right um so you take that opinion and then you have power to destroy it by the word of god which because it's raised against the knowledge of god and then the way you do that is you take every thought Oh, there's a thought right there 
catch it, right? And you put it captive, you make it surrender to obey Christ. I see that thought, I'm gonna get that thought, and I'm going to actually make it obedient to what Christ says about that thought um, from a practical perspective um, and also from a biblical perspective. That would be the only thing I would add. Well, we are already um, past, way past our time. Um, so we're going to end up to punt one or two questions and um, won't be able to uh, entertain any follow-up questions from you if you had one. But I don't want to discourage you. If you have one after service, we can talk about it for a few minutes and, and have fellowship over those. Um, if you need clarity or something was sparked in your mind. Um, but these were really important um, questions and we, we love to answer them. Um, we like hearing those questions and Lord willing, we'll have another one before the, the end of the year. So as you go through and you have these questions um, and the, that QR code comes up next time, just ask those questions, whatever those questions are. You see the wide rangedness of those questions. So thank you for asking those questions. And thank you for um, being here and listening. And I hope it was helpful. We pray that uh, the Lord would answer those questions in a more personal, intimate way, uh, because ultimately the, the final answer rests with him. Um, that being said, let's pray and finish our time together. Um, afternoon now. Lord, and our God, we are so thankful to be here in this moment, in this time, in this place, because of what your grace and your mercy has afforded us. Your grace and mercy has afforded us life biologically and also life eternally. That is your life that we experience through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for um, giving us the opportunity and the privilege to read from your word and hear from your word and also to encourage one another and to speak to one another in hymns and, and psalms and spiritual songs and encourage one another from that perspective. But also, we want to say thank you for allowing us to commune with you, have communion with you, and with one another before your table. I was set before us, taking the elements that reminded us of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the shed blood on the cross so that we as sinful people can be forgiven of our sin and also be given the bread of life that sustains us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So acknowledge, acknowledging that, we thank you. We thank you for bringing us together in love and humility and unity by the power of your spirit. We thank you for being present with us and among us, um, not only in this, set, in this setting, but also as we um, live our lives in obedience to you. So Father, we ask that you would find it faithful and, and worthy the way that we have answered um, the questions that were asked. 
we ask that you bless those who asked those questions and even those who uh, had questions that did not know how to formulate them we ask that you continue to bless them and to answer those questions in their heart lord um, because ultimately your answer is the most satisfactory 100 percent true answer that would sustain and give new life and sustain the life and um and break any bondage and, any, and destroy any stronghold. So Father, teach us what it means to do that. Teach us to continually depend on you and you alone for all of our questions, for all of life. We ask you that you continue to bless our uh, congregation um, and our unity by your presence and your spirit for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.